Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 2, looking at Judges 2, verse 16, through chapter 3, verse 6, 216 to 3, 6. Let's go to our God in prayer before we hear His precious word read. Our God of light, come before you again. Acknowledging that even in this text, there are things hard to hear, but we do pray that you would open our ears that we might hear them rightly. We might read and understand the tone of the text as divinely intended, that we might see your patience, your love, your discipline, your care, and our spiritual duty in greater light, we pray, amen. Judges 2.16 to 3.6. Hear now the word of God. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon, as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their own sons, and they served their gods. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In Psalm 30, David extols the Lord, his God, for the Lord's remarkable deliverance. David's enemies were many, and their persistent attacks plagued his body and distressed his spirit. He was rescued from the pit of Sheol, and he was restored to life. But this restoration came only after that pain, those attacks. He praises God for so great a deliverance. 
and pleads with his fellow Israelites, his co-saints, to praise the Lord as well. And in verse 5, he says, His anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. It is this biblical truth that we experience as we move from last week to this week in this text. Last week, we ended with a bit of a cliffhanger with verse 15 saying, And they were in terrible distress. God's perfect covenant anger led to his disciplining his national child, Israel. And that discipline led to this child's distress. Now, again, there is still discipline and more. There's deliverance. The Lord's loving affection for his people leads not only to discipline, but also deliverance, salvation. Divine discipline and divine deliverance do not usually coincide with our desires, with our preferences. That is to say, we do not always accept the discipline of the Lord, or it looks different from how we want it to look. And same thing with deliverance. We don't always view deliverance the way God does. We want to be delivered in some other way from the way that God has done it. But they're always, discipline and deliverance, always for our good because they come from the Lord who has joined us to his covenant and has done so by his grace. At times we fail to see the many purposes that God has for disciplining us. And one of these purposes is in this text. Despite man's stubborn ways, God's steadfast grace equips man for war. Israel was in love with her sin, and she did not care who knew it. She flaunted her sin. But the marvel that we see in this text is that this stubbornness of sin is outmatched by God's steadfastness of salvation which is seen in this gift from God, this gift of judges. Verse 16 again says, And the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. The Lord raised up judges with the national distress just waiting to be comforted. It was the Lord God who would bring this much-needed comfort, and he would do so through imperfect men, And as we'll see, as we keep moving forward, these judges themselves needed deliverance. Not one of these men is perfect. They all need the same judge that we all need. But the Lord sometimes uses broken, imperfect people to save broken, imperfect people, to rescue them. We may find fault at various points in this book with certain judges, We might come across a little heavy-handed with some of these more than others. We might take issue with Jephthah or Samson or later Gideon. And we'll give Othniel a, a free pass because nothing bad is said of him. But let us not be too quick to question their character or God's choice of them. As we'll see next week, they have the Holy Spirit upon them 
these judges are civil magistrates. They are local judges, men who would settle judicial disputes from time to time, but they are ministers of God's vengeance on evildoers, on pagan nations. They were not self-appointed men. These were men elected by God's people under the direction of the sovereign God himself. Again, it says the Lord raised up judges. And when we open our Bibles and read the story of Adam and Eve, sometimes we foolishly think, well, I wouldn't have sinned against God's command. I would have done a better job than Adam did. I would have done a better job than Eve had done. Oh, how she was deceived. Or, oh, how he misled. He was, what kind of imperfect character was Adam? Certainly, he heard the word of God. And we might say, well, what was wrong with Adam and Eve that they sinned? And if we have that attitude, we're actually adopting the attitude that Adam and Eve had. Remember Adam saying to God, well, the woman you gave me, she, she gave me the, the fruit and I ate it. It was your fault, God. Well, it was a serpent. He deceived me. And so he did. It's the serpent's fault. It's, it's all their fault. Sometimes we come to the judges in that way as well. Well, the, the judge that you gave Israel, if only you had chosen a different judge, God. We, so we challenge God's choice. We doubt his sovereignty. We question his goodness, his power, his wisdom. But we must fix this verse in our minds. And if we do so, we will be a lot quicker to see what good God is doing through these judges than what evil the judges have done. The point here is, there's a lot more grace than we give the book of Judges credit for. There's a lot more good being done by these men than we might think. We should look at what is commendable, what is excellent, what is worthy of praising God for. Because the Lord raised up the judges. They did not raise up themselves. The Lord had done it. God raises up leaders in the family. God raises up leaders in the church. God raises up leaders in the state. They're all sinners. Every last one of us. Nevertheless, God uses all of them, all of us for his good purposes. Those in the household, those in the household of faith, those in the state do well then to remember that God is sovereignly working out all things in all people for his glory. The Lord raised up the judges. It says also in verse 18, the first part of it, the Lord was with the judges. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. So God raises up men, but does not abandon them. This is no deistic God who designs the world and just lets it go wherever it'll go. No, our God is a sovereign God. And whomever he raises, he does so for his own glory. He does so remaining with the man, with the leader. The Lord pledges 
his presence with the judges during their whole judgeship. And the effects of that divine presence even outlive a particular judge. As we'll see later on next week with, with Othniel. Somebody who helped usher in 40 years of rest. And that, that land rest outlived his own life. He was a very old man when he became the judge. But the effect of God's presence with Othniel had that lasting effect. God is committed to be with his people. Just as he was with Joseph in the pit, with Joseph in the prison, with Joseph in Egypt, so now he will be with these judges in a land that is in great need of purgation from the enemies of Israel. The presence of God is to be a comfort to all of us, his people, even when that presence is meant to discipline us. Because we know that it is for our good. So the Lord raised up the judges. The Lord was with the judges. And the Lord saved Israel through the judges. That's what the text says. Whenever the Lord raised up the judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. That's verse 18 and verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. The Lord wasn't just with the judge. The Lord was with the judge for the salvation of Israel. See how kind this God is. How compassionate he is. How wise he is. How mighty he is that he would use these imperfect men for a much-needed deliverance. The Lord allowed Israel's temporary harm, as we saw last week. Remember, his hand was upon them. He pursued them for harm. And so they were in distress. But that was only to open the way for life. For greater transformation. As we saw last week, the Lord's hand was on them. These are his beloved people. Nevertheless, his affections have not changed for them. His commitment to their holiness is firm. It's fixed to the covenant, which he himself will never break. And the express purpose for raising up these judges is for the salvation of Israel. Again, God is for his people. As a loving father who disciplines his people, he is for our growth. He is for our deliverance, our rescue, our conformity to Christ. What Israel's enemies meant for evil, God means for good. God means for our mercy. God means for our wisdom. God means for our growth, albeit slow. Our growth, nevertheless. Because God is committed to us, even when we clearly are not committed to him. As we see ourselves in this text, they continue to provoke the Lord. Verse 17, this is that that passage just between those two verses I just read about the Lord's being with the judge to save them. He says, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. 
like a dagger that is plunged into our side. We read this text amazed that despite God's sovereign raising up of judges, despite his pledged presence, despite his commitment to his people, yet, yet, Israel did not listen to the divinely appointed judges. What more could God do? And this is graphic language, to be sure. The Bible speaks of Israel's ways as as whorish. They hoard after other gods. He's a prostitute. This word, as I type out this word in the word document, the word says, word document says, you don't want to use that word. And I'm like, well, why do I not want to use this word? It says so in the Bible. And like, well, it could be offensive. Yeah, I hope Israel was offended by this. I hope Israel sees her whorish ways, her prostituting ways, her adulterous ways. I hope she does. Pray to God that she do. And I hope that we would as well. Couching idolatry in this language of adultery, the Bible highlights the seriousness of her sins, of our sins. Israel leaves the Lord who redeemed her, and she cleaves to the the idol of her own making, thinking that this is finally the groom that's going to give her lasting peace, security, and identity. And the Lord says, no, that's just for your ruin. Things will get worse and worse and worse. You'll be more corrupt if you follow, if you bow down to that idol. As the unclean sow, she returns to the, the comfort of her filth. And she gets filthier still. As we read this, it's like watching our, our best friend running away from the Lord. And our hearts should ache as we see Israel sleeping with the enemy. And one instance of adultery is bad enough. And it's even hard to come back from that, isn't it? But that's not what we have here. We don't have just one episode of adultery It's not only that Israel slept with the enemy, then once regretted it and, and, and repented and sought reconciliation with, with her groom, and he says, yes, I will take you back. It's, that's not what's going on. She marries the enemy. She gives her sons and daughters to the enemy as well. She has a life with the enemy. She has a life with her, with her groom that now destroys her. Israel has, so, has grown so comfortable with the enemy that she has joined in whorish matrimony with her own idol. And things got worse and worse, as verse 19 says. So what will God do? Will he leave her to her own devices? No, he, he uses a judge to curb her infidelity, to rescue her. But we see that when the judge dies... So does her holiness. Now, this is not part of this church, but years ago I was involved in a a case with a woman who had committed adultery and who had falsely accused her husband of the same. And after a thorough investigation, the elders decided that she needed to be disciplined. But she seemed to be repentant. She had all the tears to compliment a contrite spirit. And we were affected. Because of this posture, she was not kicked out of the church. 
But still, discipline had to be done. She she was prohibited for a time from the Lord's table. So the elders could see if she truly had a change of heart. And after months of personal counsel, of accountability, and and monthly appearing before the elders, she was finally readmitted to the Lord's table. And at this, we all rejoiced. So, yes, this is church discipline done rightly. And she sees her sin. And she's back in communion with the Lord. Oh, what a glorious Sunday that was for her and the church. But two weeks hadn't passed before she returned to her vitriol and fornication. It was only her fear of excommunication or what those would think of her if the news got out that she was kicked out of the church or some other motive that restrained her. She wasn't committed to holiness. She was committed to the appearance of holiness. She had no interest in real repentance. And as went Israel, so go many in the church today who strive not after spotlessness. Who don't strive after the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Alligator repentance is better left in the murky waters they swim in. That's not the tears that God wants. Those are not the tears that God holds in a bottle, as Psalm 56 says. This is the heart of all of us when unchecked by the Spirit. We, we prefer the, the appearance of godliness without the power thereof. We prefer to have that knowledge of God without real deep wisdom. The appearance of humility without the substance. Because we desire to, be, to look better before men than before our holy God. And so we must pray that our Father would give us a deeper repentance, a true repentance, real tears because of real sin and real sorrow and a real hatred for what we have done, how we have offended God's holy law. That is what we should be praying. Oh, Lord, help me to see my sin better than I do now. Help me to see the salvation of the judge, Jesus Christ, in greater light, in greater beauty than I do now. And Christ's ministry as judge deals the death blow to our sin when we allow ourselves to go the way of the world. We need the ministry of this judge, our Jesus, our Holy-spirited Messiah, every moment of the day. We're not just watching our friend in this text running away from the Lord. We are watching ourselves. This isn't about just some Old Testament people. God doesn't want us just to see, oh, that was really bad that they did that. Must be tragic for them. It's tragic for all who follow this way. That's us. We whore after other gods. We bow down to them. We take the salvation of the Lord and say, thank you. And now what else can I do? What else do I need? We depend upon Christ for putting our sin to death on that cross. And praise be to Christ who dealt that final death blow to our sin, to the power thereof, 
as he lay there hanging on the cross. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And we depend upon his spirit who, who indwells us for our daily putting to death that sin that remains at war within us as we are new creatures of Christ. Dear ones, do you see your need for this prayer? Do you see your need for Christ? Do you see your need for his spirit? Do you see your need for the compassion of our Heavenly Father? You will when you see your sin with greater clarity. And then we pray, Father, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil in our own hearts. Deliver us from the evil from the world. Deliver us from the evil from the devil, from the evil one, our foe. Our sin and the sufferings in this world work hard together to pull us away from that pledged presence of our Redeemer Judge. But God remains true to his beloved. The more we see our sins and the wayward ways as offensive the more we ought to marvel, the more we ought to ask, why God? Why would God be so steadfast in his mercy, in his grace towards me? Verse 18, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. It's a great question. Why this grace? It's a great question because grace should shock our spirits. There's a reason we, we, we sing the title. It's not just grace. It's amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It's amazing. It's marvelous. It causes the, the spirit to wonder, to be so struck, to be dumbfounded by this grace. How could this wonderful grace amazing, marvelous, incredible, be applied to me. So non-marvelous a being, so unworthy a creature, so wicked, so miserable, so sinful, so offensive. We see our sins, their offense should knock our socks off as we realize that our dirty socks have been walking on the holy ground this whole time. This is our Father's world. All of it belongs to him. All of it is to be consecrated to him. Is this not what Uzzah learned? Has he stretched out his hand on the ark? As it was being transported? Didn't want that to fall. But instead, he fell, didn't he? Being struck by the Lord because of the holiness of God. When our terrifying sin is met with the awesome grace of God, we should be more abundantly stunned. We should marvel at how offensive our sins are. But God does not want us to stay marveling in that. To be so greatly amazed at how we offend God. That's just a means to an end. The end is to see the marvelous God created us, who sustains us, who saves us, 
as we look at, at down our hands and our, our feet, as we look at ourselves through the mirror, we see ourselves darkly. We notice the dirt and grime on our hands. We say, why this grace of washing? Now, some people, perhaps Americans in general, object to this idea of pity. And what do we say? I don't need your pity. Don't give me your pity. I'll do it myself. And there's something commendable about you know, getting, getting to a place on your own steam, if you will, to, to working hard, to accomplishing goals. But we should never approach God in that way. Oh, I don't need your pity, God. Let us not ever say that. You need his pity. Because if we say that, if that's our heart's attitude, then we close ourselves off from real divine compassion, real lasting grace, powerful mercy. When the Lord spoke to Judah in Ezekiel 16, he said, No, I pitied you. Look around as your woe and in your blood, baby Israel. As your umbilical cord is hanging out. Look around. Nobody is coming to you. Nobody cares about you. Nobody wants to pity you. They just keep walking on by, letting you wallow in your blood. But it was the Lord, moved by pity for so pitiable a people, who came, who washed her blood off of her, who cut her umbilical cord, who rubbed salt on her body, who clothed her, who dressed her with royalty. That is a picture of our God. And that's pity that I will take every day of the week. And thankfully, the Lord gives it every day of the week. As his mercies are new every morning, his compassion is always present. This grace from God, because of the cross of Christ, is the foundation of our right relationship to God. It is just another reminder, is it not, that we need God's morning mercies all the time. Dale Ralph Davis says, hundreds of years do not cool the warmth of his compassions. How could hundreds of years cool the warmth of God's compassions when he has eternally been for a people, for himself? And our God loves us so much as we saw last week, that he will use even our enemies to test us. Chapter 3, verse 1, Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. So he leaves behind the, the Philistines, those five lords of the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites. He leaves all these all these wicked nations to continue to be used to test Israel. You know, our Lord left a serpent, allowed that serpent to enter the Garden of Eden. Why? To test Adam and Eve. Not because God was against Adam and Eve, but because God was for Adam and Eve, 
that during that testing, if they had obeyed, they would have been brought into a confirmed state of heightened glory. For these nations, it was not in their hearts to be servants of the Lord. They didn't, they didn't all come together before the king of earth, or heaven and earth and say, Oh Lord, we are just unworthy servants. We see Israel over there and we know that they're doing bad things. Please let us be used in your gracious hand to discipline them. He doesn't do that. They didn't, they didn't do that. What they wanted was to terminate Israel. And if they couldn't end Israel altogether, they wanted to be a constant distress for them. The Lord's sovereignty is behind all of this opposition. And he never wastes an enemy for his children. From his pity, he left behind these enemies for Israel. But you know whom he did not leave behind? Himself. God's leaving behind his enemies in his land is not evidence of his abandonment of his people. But it was, as verse 2 says, to teach them war. He did not leave them. He didn't say, I've had enough of this covenant. I'm breaking it. We're done. Go find your own savior. From pity, from love, we have this daily reminder for us to wage war against remaining evil. Verse 2, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. This is his morning wake-up call to his children that the fight rages on. Don't get out of bed thinking that you're not in a battle. A battle against your own sin. A battle against the world. A battle against the evil one. Don't be deceived, dear ones. Every day is a fight. Every day we, this side of heaven, are called the church militant, waging war against the evil one. And so this is a constant call. O church, arise, put your armor on. Israel in the days of the judges needed this daily lesson, and so do we. We cannot be passive. We cannot rest on our laurels. God tests his people so that they will know, so that we will know whether or not we will deny him. God tests us so that we will see our own faithfulness. God knew that Adam and Eve would disobey. But they didn't know that until they disobeyed. And God knew that Abraham would be willing to give up Isaac. But he didn't until he did. Until that test was given to him. We wake up in a battle every day. And the Lord has commanded us to put on his armor, the full armor, that we would be fully and in every inch equipped, defended from the darts of the evil one, yes, but also on the offensive, the attack against the gates of hell. This spiritual life is an active one. We are fighting with these means of the word, the sacrament, and prayer. We are fighting joined to one another, connected to Christ, our warrior, and empowered by his spirit. 
And the Lord, if you consider Job, the Lord allowed all of that stuff to happen to him. The Lord allowed the adversary, Satan, to plague him body, to touch him every way except for the damnation of his soul. Having even a wife against him. Oh, Job, curse God and die and be done with it. Oh, Job, find where you have sinned against God. Repent and be restored to relationship with the Lord. And even Job came to a point where he said, I wish I had never been born. Sometimes Christians have this, this trial of the Spirit. The Lord never left Job. Think of Paul. Oh, Lord, please remove this thorn in my flesh. Oh, Lord, please leave. get it out. Get it out of my side. Lord, you didn't hear me the first two times. A third time, then I will pray. Remove this from me. Do you not know how, how harmful this is to me? Do you not know how this plagues my body? Couldn't I be a more successful minister with this thorn removed? Couldn't I be a more faithful servant of Christ if I didn't have this suffering? And what does God say? My grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. It's okay that you can be weak. It's okay that you can have hard thoughts. The Lord hasn't left you. The Lord has never stopped loving you. The Lord is with you. He raised up that thorn and he plunged it in your side, Paul. Job, he gave you all that suffering. Not because he hated you, but because he loved you. Because he wanted to see you humble, growing in your Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So you could say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Come what may, my God loves me. Come what may, his compassions are for me. Come what may, God is for me and for my deliverance, always and forever. Amen. Let's pray. A great, gracious Father in heaven, I come before you again humbly. Acknowledging how, how merciful you are, 
how you've pitied us. You've made us, a, a, you made us your people. And still, we go after other gods. We go after other temporary pleasures. Oh Lord, by your Spirit, transform us. Renew our minds. Renew our affections. Renew our wills day by day. Do not leave us. We thank you that because of what Christ has done for us, you will never leave us nor forsake us, but will always work out all things according to the counsel of your will for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name I pray, amen.